Hola, mi amigo. Habla Espanol. The Dems debate. Kim's kimono no no. And why your presentations suck. All this and more on this week's Three C's in a Pod. Three C's in a Pod, a weekly podcast from Provision Advisors. A look at the good, the bad, and the what could be better in the world of communication. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Bashan Mann, and with me on the show are Chris Savello and John Schofield. We thank you for joining us this week. For more of the Provision Conversation, follow us on Twitter and give us your thoughts at ProV Advisors. That's P-R-O-V Advisors. Or you can check us out on the web, www.provisionadvisors.net. As always, we look forward to hearing from you. All right, folks, let's begin today's show with our first segment, Rearview Mirror. Uh, we're starting on the season of the debates. Uh, we're starting to see the Democrats uh, with their versions uh, and so what we're starting to see is an idea for what these candidates, uh, what the policies that they're, they're going to stand on, how they're going to address their audience. Uh, we're looking at this from a communication standpoint, uh, why a particular candidate uh, will try to position themselves uh, in front of an audience and perhaps move their numbers a little bit as we lead into the Iowa caucuses. John, I will actually go to you first. What are you seeing uh, in terms of uh, what's important for, for a specific candidate or maybe even how candidates are being pushed uh, in one direction, perhaps by the, uh, the moderators that are, uh, that are holding the debates. I find it pretty interesting from a communication standpoint to see how this entire situation is still kind of a popularity contest. That mm-hmm. uh, during the debate, uh, the moderators certainly ask more questions of Elizabeth Warren, of Cory Booker, um, you, you got the definite impression that Tulsi Gabbard and Jay Inslee and even Tim Ryan uh, were, were already being given this also ran status and try as they did. They really, really tried to, to interject and, and do something flamboyant or provocative uh, to, to get their voice heard and get their communication and talking points out. But it was very difficult. And and those candidates, uh, the Jay Inslees and the Delaney's and the Tulsi Gabbard's are going to have to go back and not only grade their performance um, at the debate, which I think for Tulsi Gabbard was very unimpressive. Um, I thought Delaney was pretty impressive and pretty good. But uh, again, down there at the very end of the of the line, he he had the appearance and he was given the attention as if he was not important. So in, in the post-debate battle space, they have to evaluate how they did and what they do to, to get their points out there better. Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and even Julian Castro, in my opinion, did a very good job during the debate. That um, They now have the big momentum. Um, the other candidates are now going to have to do other things. Mm-hmm. It's not just about going to Iowa. They're going to have to communicate better. Uh, more effectively and and be more present in the space. Chris, how about you? So I saw this as a breakthrough week, um, and I actually saw it as a breakthrough week for the Dems in their debate, but also for the president. Um, the president did a number of uh, of national news interviews uh, over the last week. He sat down with Stephanopoulos two weeks ago. He sat down with uh, Meet the Press last week, and then there were a number throughout the week. So I think he is also trying to break through and establish what his 2020 uh, campaign will look like. In terms of the the Democrats, um, unless you're top four, as John has laid out a couple times on the pod, 
you really do need to use these debates to be able to break through and to establish yourself. Um, as we were talking about before we came on uh, on the pod, I really look at this in terms of three areas. Um, the ability to distinguish yourself, and that's to wrap together your background, your experience, the goods and the bads of your career, and lay that out for uh, for the voters. Then to be able to simply and easily lay out your vision and plan for the audience so that they now understand who you are, they see your vision and plan. And then the third thing in, in the ability or as you try to break through is to be nimble and able to pivot. So you don't want to be so rigid and so uh, connected to yourself and your plan that you're unable to pivot and respond to either mistakes that you've made or your opponents made or the, as the environment shifts, you, you, you really have to be able to, to move and to uh, be true to yourself and true to your plan, but to be able to pivot to the left and the right. And so I think whatever, in addition to those popular candidates that John discussed, whichever other candidate is able to distinguish his or herself, lay out their plan and be able to move as the environment moves, I think that's the person that's gonna take uh, best advantage of this summer and fall period as they head into New, uh, New Hampshire and Iowa and the other votes early in the winter of 2020. The talking point there, Chris, and the way that they tried to do that, and you raise an incredibly good point, that the way that they tried to do it is with the phrase, I'm the only candidate who. Jay Inslee, I thought, did a very good job of saying, I'm the only candidate who actually believes that climate change is a crisis. De Blasio did it in a much more unique and kind of disturbing way. I'm the only candidate who has raised an African-American child up on the stage, which was sort of a, for me personally, it was a head-scratching moment. But yeah, they're trying to do that by, you know, obviously 20 Democrats who are going to be on this debate stage, the only way you can really stand out uh, ideologically is to find that one thing that that sets you apart and they're using it by saying I'm the only candidate who does this up until that second debate they really did avoid going after each other and it was in that second debate that you saw Kamala Harris um, I would imagine as a way of distinguishing herself uh, planned way of distinguishing herself decided to go after former Vice President Biden a lot of people think she won the night because of that and the coverage and the narrative after the debate has largely focused on that. And so whether it's Kamala Harris or if any of the other candidates have similar moments or if Biden hits back, I mean, the, the real question is, is how do you turn that into votes? And what do you do once you've distinguished yourself? What happens next? How do they persuade 15, 20% of those people that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, how do they convince that 15 to 20% that what they bring to um, the office of the president will make their, their life better? To me, that's how this whole thing will be won or lost. If uh, the Democratic candidate is able to sway that 15 uh, to 20% that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, I think you see a Democrat in the White House. If they're unable to do that, I think you see the, the president reelected. And I hope they get to that pretty quickly because all of these sort of traditional liberal ideas um, are great and they're interesting, 
but I don't think that's what's going to get you that 15 to 20 percent uh, swing um, that, that will ultimately win the election. That's a it's an excellent point, Chris. And I, I remember in the past that that you and I have talked about that percentage uh, makeup before is that that formula. My my as this debate season uh, begins and the train starts heading down the track, uh, my focus is actually on on the moderators, the moderators and just the sheer number of people, the, the logistics of it all. As I look back to three years ago in a very crowded Republican field and how that sort of played out in front of us, and you couldn't really focus uh, as, an, as someone in the audience uh, trying to, you know, it's either you, you had your one individual that you were keying on um, and then the others just sort of faded into the background. Uh, so the moderators of each of these debates are gonna have a really big, uh, just an important role in, in trying, and John, as, as you had pointed out, you know, to, to move away from uh, any of their selfish tendencies, preferences, uh, favoritism, whatever you want to call it, and actually, you know, uh, steer a really good debate with all the candidates. And it's just going to be very hard uh, with with a number of, you know, whether it's 10 or 20 or just however many are, are in front of you uh, and trying to get something of substance within two hour time frame, three hour time frame, whatever that's going to be. So uh, yeah, I, I look at the moderators and, and hopefully that they have their, their A game on uh, and, can, and can move things along uh, in a good fashion. So um, there's, there's more for us to see, uh, a lot of time in front of us uh, and I'll be tuning in as I'm sure you guys will. I just wonder if the next debate will involve a moderator asking one of the candidates a question in French. <laughs> uh, because it's going to take more than you speaking Spanish to for me to vote for you for president. Let me just throw that out there. Wee oui, wee oui, wee oui, wee. Oui. Uh, gentlemen, let's switch gears a little bit in the rearview mirror here. Uh, we're going to bring up a name that I don't know if we've ever even talked about here uh, on this podcast. Um, but Kim Kardashian made some news this week uh, with the unveiling of her new, I believe they call it shapewear. Um, she trademarked the name Kimono. To, uh, to identify her new shapewear brand uh, that she's bringing forth. And that drew the ire of uh, not only the, the Japanese community, uh, but also other, other folks out there with a, with a sort of understanding of what uh, you would call uh, cultural appropriation, uh, something that the Kardashian family is actually somewhat famous in, or known for. I don't know if, if it's going to um, you know, harm her, uh, in terms of uh, her overall brand, uh, I feel like there's just a segment of our society, uh, a segment that I don't necessarily identify with, uh, that chooses to devour, um, digest anything that uh, Kardashian puts out. Um, and I'll, I'll just remain confused by that. Uh, but I can't, uh, I can't let this go by without making uh, sort of a, uh, a note of just the continued uh, disrespect uh, that choosing to trademark uh, the word kimono uh, for your own personal use uh, and what a, a disrespectful move that is to the Japanese culture. Uh, any thoughts, gentlemen? Isn't it provocative enough to to get her noticed? Isn't that what the Kardashians want? And, and in particular, Kim, that, that, that's, what, that's what you do now. It's very Trump-like in its... Uh, in its audacity to come out and and trademark something and no matter how disrespectful it might seem or no matter how the naysayers uh, will roast you on Twitter it's getting her the attention she wants and that's where this communications paradigm is moving um, that is 
who who said what, who did what, and who did it in such a way that attracted the most attention. Uh, and if it really pissed people off, let's just hope that 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 fades away, and we just can capitalize on the uh, on the attention that we that we got and and the people who didn't disagree with it and then we maintain that customer base or voter base going forward kim kardashian in this case is not all that different from donald trump chris yeah i mean first off i was going to say when we got together six seven months ago and talked about starting a podcast this was the segment that you know i had in mind uh, <laughs> when you know when we decided to do it totally <laughs> Kimonos, trademarks, uh, you know, plus size uh, uh, <laughs> outfits. So yeah, you're right, John. I mean, this is kind of where we find ourselves. PT Barnum was right. There is no such thing as bad publicity. And uh, I think major influencers like Donald Trump before he ran for president, like Kim Kardashian, uh, like the Jenner girls and, and others have really capitalized on this and have used it to their brand advantage. The question is, at what point do people like this, do they cross a line and where the larger audience says, hey, that's not cool and we're not gonna, we're not gonna buy into this anymore. Not only are we not gonna buy into it, the backlash will be such that it, it changes this trend. I, I think we still have a long way to go, unfortunately. Well, you are right. And it will be, um, it will be interesting to see uh, what falls to the wayside or if this train uh, keeps keeps moving forward in terms of what we're seeing on Twitter right now under the hashtag Kim Ono, uh, so will you still be able to use the phrase "part the kimono," or is that is that off limits now? I mean, that, it, that might be a off huge limits. part of our vernacular. Whoa! <laughs> that's a, that's a, All right. Yeah, I mean, this could degrade very quickly. So that's just, well, what's, what's we. Again, again, uh, as we as we always say, you know, from a from a communication standpoint in branding, uh, because that's, you know, that's our bread and butter. Uh, I certainly would have advised uh, a different way uh, to go around um, the unveiling of this new what they call shapewear uh, by Miss Kardashian. Uh, John, we're going to move forward. I know you have an important subject uh, that you'd like to talk about before we wrap up Rear View Mirror. So I'm going to hand this over to you. Another uh, opportunity for me to talk about, as we talked about a couple of pods ago, about local storytelling uh, and the importance of your local audience and, and your community. And that is that the 28th of June uh, was and is and will forever be the anniversary of the Capital Gazette newsroom shooting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just another opportunity for us to, to take pause and, and remember uh, what that senseless gun violence did to this community, to that paper, to those people. Um, there was a little bit of discussion about gun violence uh, during the debate last night. I thought it was, I thought it was uh, in, in, at some times pretty good, at some times pretty pedestrian and, and disappointing. Um, but mostly they talked about gun control and gun violence in uh, the context of you know, the shooting at Marjorie uh, Stoneman Douglas uh, and and other schools and and how our kids don't feel safe and we talked about it on this podcast but it wasn't brought up that that the press was actually um, uh, in the crosshairs literally of of a shooter and and I would encourage everyone to get on to uh, capgaznews.com uh, or just search Capital Gazette 
online and read some of the articles that these reporters uh, have written as they've been leading up to this one year, this very grim anniversary. Danielle Ohl, uh, who is a very talented and young reporter, um, wrote um, kind of a, what this last year meant, where they went physically. Um, the newsroom was shifted to the old Annapolis Opera House uh, on Maryland Avenue how they were taken in and made part of the community and the community helped all of them heal. Uh, it was very, very powerful and a well-written piece by Danielle. Uh, Paul Gillespie, who's one of the photojournalists for the Capitol, uh, put together a really good photo essay um, with some of the victims, uh, spouses, uh, families, uh, with the reporters themselves talking about and just showing through um, the medium of photos, uh, how they've all been affected and how they've changed. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to, to never forget June 28th, uh, to read some of these articles, look at these pictures and, and keep the Capital Gazette uh, newsroom in, in your minds and in your hearts as you go forward. It's a, uh, it's a grim anniversary, but an important anniversary as we go forward, hoping that people really understand the value of the local paper, number one, and that the press is never and should never be the enemy, number two. John, thank you for that reflection. We really appreciate it. Uh, and our hearts, uh, hearts and minds and thoughts are focused on, those, uh, on that community in Annapolis um, as they uh, acknowledge this anniversary. Uh, so I thank you. Uh, folks, we took a look back, and when we return, we're going to deep dive. Uh, stick with us. You're listening to Three C's in a Pod. Provision Advisors, we prepare your team for the what-ifs you never thought you'd encounter. Let us help solve your toughest communication challenges and leave your team stronger and more capable for the opportunities that lie ahead. All right, folks, we're back, and it's time to deep dive. Uh, recently, Chris, you actually uh, put up a, uh, a story about presentations for business, um, essentially you know, why they succeed or why they fail. Um, gave a couple of points. Um, about what makes for a successful uh, presentation to your audience. So I figure, uh, gentlemen, let's sort of go around and talk about, uh, give our insight as to uh, why a specific presentation is going to put you over the top or actually uh, have you walking out of the room in shame. So Chris, I will throw to you uh, to talk a little bit about the specific uh, article in question. This particular article was on Fast Company. Um, and it caught my attention. It's by a gentleman named Darren uh, Manabne. Uh, he uh, lives in Tokyo, um, leads global employee engagement at Rikoa, and teaches MBA students at Globus University. I'll put a link in the write-up to it. But the name of the article was Three Reasons Your Presentations Suck. Um, and the three of us have worked for senior leaders, and now um, as we run a small business center out there doing business development, we find ourselves doing a lot of presentations, whether it's directly for clients, to clients, or other things. And um, so I, it got me digging into this. And I mean, it was it was very, uh, very straightforward and to the point. He says that there's three reasons that your presentations suck. One, you don't care enough about the audience. Two, you don't put in the time to create simple slides. Mm -hmm. And three, you don't rehearse enough. And I thought, boy, that's, I started thinking about our experience and my experience working for senior leaders. And I thought, man, those three things are right on. So I thought it was worth, you know, as you said in the open, um, throwing it out there for the, the pod audience and getting your take. For me, I, I think it's, 
Uh, obviously, the slide part is uh, is is an important one. Whatever your you know your prop is, whether it's slides or whatever you use to drive home your message, making mm -hmm. that simple and easy uh, to the point is very important. But I think that the real the real key is the the first and the third, not caring or knowing enough about your audience, and then the third part is is not practicing enough. Um, yes. I'm certainly guilty of that my, myself. Um, and I really try to drive that home into the clients and senior leaders that we work for that if it's worth you giving an hour of your time, it's probably worth taking four or five hours to prepare and think about and be ready for the presentation so that it really uh, achieves the goal that you're after. Right. No, that, and I, I certainly agree. Um, you'll hear people, we've all heard this before, right? Uh, practice makes perfect when it was actually uh, Vince Lombardi who said, perfect practice makes perfect. So yes, uh, take the time. It's, it's, it's the core of our media training, right? Uh, we run people through, um, through, the, through the wickets of different types uh, of media that they're going to face. Uh, and we do it in a way like one, uh, we have to prepare, right? We prepare beforehand uh, so that they can feel comfortable in their element and then run them through uh, to make sure that they feel comfortable once that red light gets turned on or a microphone is put in their face. Uh, so yeah, I key on number three, um, more, like most important of all, like take the time to get it right so that when you actually go out there and it's game time, you feel comfortable in that space. You've been there before, you know how you're going to deliver it and and you're also prepared for a contingency. If, you know, if, if a mistake uh happens or you you know you come across a bogey um and you have to uh you have to adjust so yeah i'm very i'm very high on the practice part it, it shows uh in your delivery um because when you when you show up and you just try to shoot from the hip and you say ah oh, you know i'm a professional i know how to do this well you can fall uh john how about you well i think we're all three of us in a very unique position to, to offer what I believe is, is pure expertise on this. Um, I've, given, I've given presentations to, to audiences as large as the entire brigade of midshipmen and as small as uh, a group of six to seven international officers at the public affairs qualification course for international officers at DINFOS. And, and you, you know, to, the, to Chris's point about you know, issue number one here is you really do have to know your audience. You have to know exactly what is going to resonate with them and what's not going to resonate with them. And then it also requires a little bit of agility from you as the presenter to know your audience based on what you see in the here and now. You can read bios, you can understand how many people are gonna be in there, but there's a certain mood to a room when you walk into the room. And you have to be able to adjust based on that mood. Maybe everyone's got a case of the Mondays. Maybe everyone's in a really like excited mood, or maybe you're the last presentation before you know a conference happy hour before lunch, and everyone's starving. Know all of those variables. Know them and be able to adjust and pivot based on the the room that you read when you go in there. Um, you also have to be able to adjust and pivot if you do all three of those things that Chris mentioned and you're, and you're still told or you still get the feeling that your presentation sucks. Chris and I sat at a table at the Pentagon not too long ago, presented something. We thought it was great. We did all three of those things and we were told in no uncertain terms that the presentation sucked. 
and it was met with with anger and distaste and you have to be able to not get emotionally attached to it adjust pivot drive forward um change the presentation as desired and go from there so don't don't feel like those three things are going to exact you a perfect outcome mm -hmm. um just be ready to you have to have confidence and and you have to be able to adjust and pivot and and i'm sorry that confidence and that ability to adjust comes with number three which is doing it and doing it and doing it more and that whole thing is no different than what bash and i did at the defense information school for years and years is you have to go in there and be able to present the one hour lesson plan on communications planning or pag um and and be able to deliver it in a unique way with total expertise so you command the attention um so yeah i thought i thought the article was great um i thought it was insightful and i think that there are lessons to be learned there for people so i would encourage them to go to the website um read you know what when chris uh, drops it on there read that article and and uh go forward with no fear and confidence in your presentations Great point. Great point. Listen, folks, stay with us. We're going to come right back with what's next on the horizon. You're listening to Three Season a Pod. At Provision Advisors, we specialize in strategic communication planning, execution, and coaching for senior level leaders and communicators dedicated to achieving success. We work together with your team to achieve favorable outcomes amid contentious or controversial issues which directly impact relationships and market identity. Welcome back to Three Season of Pod with Provision Advisors. Gentlemen, let's look out on the horizon at what the next week may bring. Chris, I'm throwing to you. So for me, both this week and uh, in the weeks to come, I'm looking at the Navy's ability to get the naval narrative out in what has now become a very Army-centric world. With President Trump's announcement of Secretary of the Army Esper to be his likely Secretary of Defense candidate, uh, Esper joins Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, presumptive uh, Chairman Milley as three very powerful national security voices with strong Army backgrounds. Talked about the need for a succinct and easily understood naval narrative, but I think now more than ever with three very strong Army voices in the national security space, uh, the Navy's going to really need that narrative to break through, not just in the Pentagon, not just in the national security arena as it involves the President and other national leaders, but for the entire American public. So that's what I'll be watching this week and over the next several weeks. All right, John, how about you? Well, speaking of Secretary Esper, um, he was handed a little homework assignment on uh, June 26th by the president. We talked about it a little bit on this uh, pod before in the context of Noah Song, uh, but the president some weeks, months ago, uh, stood in the Rose Garden with the uh, Army West Point football team as he presented the Commander-in-Chief's trophy to them and said, I really think that uh, that these young men and women uh, who play uh, sports at the service academies or uh, maybe are, are good athletes and doing ROTC programs should be able to play professional sports should they be extended the opportunity to. Um, he made that official on the 26th of June with a memo uh, directing the Department of Defense to create a policy uh, within the next 120 days that allows for for that accommodation. Um, that, that really only applies to one guy right now, and his name is Noah Song, who was drafted mm -hmm. in the fourth round by the Boston Red Sox. So 
I'm interested to see, Chris and I were talking um, before the pod about how vague the memo actually was. You know, it, it said in sort of general terms that the president still wanted these young men and women to be able to pursue professional sports. And then he directed the, the DOD to, to create a more defined policy, but it really didn't say they are allowed to right now. I think that's what he meant. Um, and, and that's the intent of the memo, but how they navigate that, what policy they create, it's also made very clear in the memo that he still wants people to serve their obligations. How are they going to do that? Is it going to be uh, a little bit more time in the reserves? Uh, are they going to be required to do things in the off season? I'm interested to see how this policy gets created uh, and what minds are put together uh, at the DOD level to inform this policy. But in the end, and I'll finish with this, I'm very happy for uh, Noah Song and for other athletes who will who will get an opportunity to live both dreams. I think it's possible to serve uh, and also be a professional athlete, and doing both at the same time I think makes you a very good ambassador. So uh, that's what I'm looking on the horizon. Great point, John. We look forward to seeing Noah Song uh, out there uh, on the baseball diamond soon. Uh, gentlemen, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a different tact here. Uh, if the familiar sounds around my neighborhood tell me anything right now, it's that it's fireworks season. Kids uh, and adults alike um, are uh, going around and you've got these little pop-up fireworks stores. You can even go into a Costco uh, and get yourself a, a pretty hefty uh, amount of fireworks here in the D.C. area. Um, and I just caution folks uh, to remember safety. Uh, according to the National Safety Council, back in 2017, at least eight people died and over 20, uh, 12,000 were injured badly enough to require medical treatment after a fireworks related incident. Of those, 50% of the injuries were to children and young adults under the age of 20. So if you're gonna be out there enjoying uh, fireworks, if, they, if that's, your, uh, if that's your bag, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask that you please watch out for children, uh, watch out for yourselves, adults, if you're going to choose to, uh, to light fireworks off in your backyard or wherever you are, please take certain safety precautions like uh, having water, a water source close by, and, and using eye and ear protection uh, when you're going to do that. Uh, you, can, you can certainly enjoy the summer months, enjoy the holiday uh, without a trip to the hospital. That's my take uh, on that right there. Please, please be safe. Okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining us here on Three Season a Pod. I want you to have a great weekend. And until next week, be good, be safe, and be better than yesterday. Thank you for listening to Three C's in a Pod. Have a great week.